What would it be like to be a fly on the wall listening to a conversation between God and Satan? I wonder what their first conversation, their first interaction was like between God and the devil. The Bible doesn't tell us, but Satan was created by God at some point. He did not just come about on his own. He was a created, he is a created being. He was created either during the creation week or before the creation week. The Bible doesn't inform us on that. Presumably, though, when you think about all creation, at least before the fall, it all sprang forth in praise to God. Every being and everything that God had made responded the way that God wanted it to respond. It was created in perfection, and therefore when it came to life, it was perfect. It would have responded to the Creator with rejoicing. It would have responded to the Creator with love. The Bible may give some insight. It's a little bit debated in regard to how Satan fell from heaven. There's a lot of mystery in regard to to how and when Satan fell from grace and how he came to discover and even act on his sinful impulses. But what would it be like to listen to a conversation between that fallen being, Satan, and the perfect, holy God? We have a couple instances in the Bible, don't we, where we see this sort of interaction. Maybe your mind goes to Job, where the devil ascends with the sons of God before the throne of God, and he he asks about Job, right? But then we have another situation this morning, in Genesis chapter 3, where God speaks to the serpent. God looks into the little dead beady eyes of that snake, and He speaks The same one that spoke the entire creation into being. The one who spoke the heavens and the earth into place. He's now using that same mouth and voice to speak to Satan. But there are a couple of levels on which God speaks this morning. And you can kind of see the difference in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. And In verse 14, we see, of course, that Satan had taken on the form of a serpent. And God curses snakes. For the rest of time, because of what Satan had done. This crafty creature that Satan had entered, God curses the snake, and he he curses all subsequent snakes, doesn't he? The punishment that was levied against all snakes would be that they would eat dirt, and they would crawl on their bellies all of the days of their lives. Anytime you see something slithering on the ground, it's a couple feet long, it's got that tongue shooting out of its mouth, you immediately think, snake! Right? That's a snake. But then there would be a judgment that not only snakes would experience, but the true snake, the great snake, the great dragon, there would be a punishment for him directly. Judgment was going to come to Satan, but it would not be immediate. It would actually not come to Satan very quickly. He was worthy of God stepping into that garden, wasn't he? And, and, and God stepping on his head. That, that's what we kind of imagine should have happened. Like we think, Adam, you should have come along when that snake was tempting your wife. You should have come and you should have stepped on the head of that snake. And so when God comes into the picture, if we're reading it for a first time, we could be thinking to ourselves, why isn't God stepping on the snake's head? Why isn't God crushing this thing? But instead, God makes a promise to him. Instead of crushing him right in that moment, he promises that one day down the line that he was going to 
crush his head. That the head of Satan would be bruised. More graphically, like I've been saying, that his head would be crushed. God doesn't threaten Satan here. Sometimes when you're watching something, or maybe in your own tense interactions with somebody, they'll be like, is that a threat? You'll say, no, that's a promise. And a threat wasn't being levied right here. A promise was being given. A promise that would have been to the sheer horror of Satan, but a promise that must have been a delight to Adam and Eve. A promise that when they heard it, they would have been so grateful to hear that God was promising that a judgment was going to be passed down onto this snake, and it would be a promise that would come to pass in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look with me at this great passage, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So remember a couple weeks ago, the last time that we were together in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve fall into sin. God comes looking for Adam. He finds Adam and he begins to question him, doesn't he? He's in the garden. All that has transpired with disobeying this cosmic treason against God. And you remember what Adam does, right? That he looks to God and he says, hey, this woman that you gave me, she's actually the problem, right? So blaming God and the woman. So God comes, questions him. Oh, actually, it's, it's the woman, right? It's, it's actually Eve. It's, it's all on her. And then what happens after that? God turns to Eve and he asks her about it, right? And what does she do? She says, oh, it's actually this serpent right here, right? So she begins to blame the serpent. She takes the cue from her husband. She doesn't want to take the blame as much as he doesn't want to take the blame. But you notice that God doesn't even take the time to untangle that web, doesn't he? He doesn't say, okay, yeah, it's actually you, and it's actually you. He doesn't take the time to do that. As the omniscient God, the one who knows all things, he just jumps right into the consequences of their actions. You remember that their consequences touch close to home for both Adam and Eve. Their consequences, the judgment, was going to be in relation to their most important relationships. So for Eve and Adam, in their marriage, they were going to have marital conflict. Her desire was going to be contrary to her husband. And then the text says that he will rule over her. There's going to be this marital struggle. But then for Eve, her second level of most important relationships, her children, it was going to be painful to bring them forth. In pain, she would bring forth her children. But then for Adam, what would hit close home to home for him was that he would be experiencing the toil And the long days working the ground. And the ground not working with and for him anymore. Now the ground would be working against him. But what we didn't hit last time we were together in Genesis. Was this judgment that God levied against the serpent and Satan. Verse 14 shows us that the serpent and all subsequent serpents are cursed. Every time you see a garden snake. While you're out working in your yards this this spring, you should remember this passage. 
The reason that snake is slithering on the ground is because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. You remember that the serpent, according to Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, the serpent is the most crafty animal around. This is the most crafty animal that God had created. But now what's it going to be? It's going to be the most cursed animal. Going from the most crafty to the most cursed. The indication here is that a snake used to have legs. Their legs would be taken away. Some have said that maybe a snake was more upright and that it kind of held itself up a little more upright and stood up a little bit. But the legs were taken away. So maybe it didn't look like a big centipede, right, with all those millions or hundreds of legs, right? But it, it maybe had a couple legs and, and stood up, right? I guess if, if it's a centipede, that means it has a hundred legs, right? Okay. So what, millipede is a million? I don't know. But think of the imagery of this. That the snake was possessed by Satan. Satan is the one who was consumed with pride, right? Satan is dense with arrogance. He's lifted up in his own pride. But now what was going to be the position of a snake from here on out? Laid low. The snake is in a constant position of bowing, isn't it? Every time you see a snake coming toward you, it's in a position of humility. It's humbly bowing before you. And that would be the immediate repercussion given by God to snakes. But there would be another repercussion that didn't happen for quite some time. Like I had mentioned, really, for thousands of years, it wouldn't happen. Just like Adam and Eve were going to die, it wouldn't be immediate. And the consequence that was going to be handled to Satan would also not be immediate. But these words come to us in Genesis 3.15. And in the words of this verse, I think you have some of the most important words in the entire Bible. If this isn't the most important verse in the Bible, it is certainly in the top few. Maybe John 3.16, verses like that. But Genesis 3.15 is so important. To the point where I would say that if you don't understand this verse that we're looking at this morning... I'm really not sure you can understand the grand theme of redemption that runs through the entire, the entire Bible. What you have here is what many have called the proto-evangelium. So proto meaning first, like a prototype. It's the first. But then you have the word evangelium, which would be evangel or evangelical, meaning gospel. So proto-evangelium meaning first gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first pronouncement of good news that we have in the Bible. This is the first declaration of the gospel that we see within the pages of Scripture. In the middle of paradise being lost, where everything is crashing down and everything is in, is, is in issue, we have this gospel pronouncement. God Himself being the first one to preach the good news. God being the first one who in the fallen world now is delivering a gospel message. He's extending a promise. And this would be a promise. This would be a gospel proclamation that would ring throughout the halls of the entire Old Testament until the one who would fulfill the promise would finally come. And so God makes this promise. He rings that bell. And that bell just echoes throughout the whole Old Testament. This was a promise that, again, Eve would have just, must have clung to. That the serpent that deceived her would finally receive a bruise to his head. 
a promise that declared that the one who would come and do away with a vile snake, that that would actually happen. She didn't know who would do it. She didn't know who would bruise their heel while they're bruising the head of the snake. But the promise was given nonetheless. And so God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Put enmity between you two, between your offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel, his heel. So why is that such a big deal? You may read that verse and you might think I've already made too big of a deal out of it as it is. But understand it well. There is going to be enmity. The word enmity is like deep-seated antagonism, alienation. There, There would be this hostility, this bad blood, this loathing between the woman and the snake. But there's so much more to this bad blood than the fact that women and men would be afraid of snakes. That exists. But there's a whole dimension to this, a whole spiritual dimension to this. That in part, because there's not only going to be enmity between the snake and the woman, there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. Now, th- this is language we don't use. Like, I've never heard any of you talk about, you know, your seed. Right? I've never heard anybody talk like that, right? Because we're not in the ancient Near East. We're in the West, We're way too individualistic to be thinking about three, four, five, eight, ten generations down the line, right? So we might talk about our kids, we might talk about our grandkids, but we generally don't say, oh yeah, I really want to save up some money and make some investments for my great, 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 great grandkids. We don't think that way. We don't talk about our offspring in that sense. But between the seed of the woman... And between the seed of the snake, the offspring from both of them, there was going to be this hostility. There was going to be this bad blood. And it was just going to be that way generation after generation after generation. And like any battle, like any hostile situation, the question has to be for us, well, who's going to win this thing? If there's going to be hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake, this hostility that's always happening throughout history, who's going to win that thing? Who's going to win the battle? So you have hostility between uh, the, the, the army of the north, the army of the south, and the civil war. Who's going to win? World War II, the allied powers, the Axis powers. Who's going to win the war? Well, there's hostility between the woman and the snake. There's hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake. Who's going to win? And God gives us the answer. And this is why it's such good news. Because within the context of that fall and the sin that had happened and how terrible and bleak it was all looking, God preaches the good news of the gospel that despite there's going to be relational conflicts between the man and his wife, there's going to be relationship conflicts and difficulties between parents and their children, there's going to be difficulties between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. The promise is issued forth, but he is going to bruise the head of the snake. Somebody is going to come, and with their heel, they're going to stomp on the head of the snake. And so that's why it's such a beautiful promise. Because within such a bleak situation, where it looked like Satan won the day, that this glorious promise is made. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. So God tells us exactly what the outcome is going to be. 
the outcome of the hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake was going to be the resounding defeat of the snake. And so he tells the serpent, your head is going to be bruised. And the one who bruises your head is not going to have a bruised head in return. It's not as though the one who's going to come and crush the head of the snake is going to be ultimately crushed like the snake will ultimately be crushed. He's just going to bruise his heel, which is a far less significant injury than a bruised head. So how does this then help us to understand the great story of the Bible? How does Genesis 3.15 help us as we begin marching through the rest of the Bible in our Bible reading to think well about it and to understand it well? This redemptive thread that is seen all throughout the Bible, even extending all the way to us, where we, of course, are the redeemed in Christ. It helps us to understand the Bible's central point, though, to be Jesus. So the Sunday school, the pat Sunday school answer that kids will often give to their teachers. What's the answer to this question? Jesus! Jesus! That's exactly what the answer is. What is the point to the Bible? The point to the Bible is Jesus. How do we know that? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, Jesus is the Word. He is it. And He speaks to us through it. Understanding Jesus as the central point of the Bible is so vital because Jesus is the skull crusher. Jesus is the one who would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that someone would come and crush the vile serpent's filthy head. And so understanding Jesus as the central point, even specifically of the Old Testament, revolutionizes the way that probably most of us have been taught to view the Old Testament. So all, so as the Bible continues from Genesis 3.15, what we're looking for is we're looking for the skull crusher. That's who, that's who you're thinking about. That, that's what God wants. As we're reading through this, we hit Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We see this beautiful creation. Then we come to Genesis 3 with a fall. God makes a promise, and now we're looking for the answer to that promise. As you go through the rest of the Bible, you're looking for, okay, he promised a skull crusher. Where is he? Where is he? That's what we're looking for. So when all of this happens, and Eve hears this promise, she's got to be thinking to herself, okay, well, as I have children, maybe Cain will come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, what does he do? He crushes his brother's head instead, doesn't he? Okay, now, now I have Seth. Is Seth going to crush the head of the serpent? But he doesn't. All throughout, we're waiting for the response to this promise. But what we do see throughout the Old Testament is we see what we call types. Types of the one to come. Individuals that point us to Jesus in some way. They might do little skull crushings here and there, but they don't do the full and final and ultimate skull crushing. They, they can never fully and finally deal with evil. They can never fully and finally deal with the serpent. There's even accounts that make it look like Satan himself is the one that's going to have the victory, doesn't it? Over the woman and her seed. Like even in Genesis chapter 3. Don't you leave Genesis chapter 3 thinking Satan won that round. And then you get to Genesis chapter 4 where Cain kills Abel. And don't you think to yourself, Satan won that round. 
Genesis chapter 6 comes along. And there's the, the world is so polluted that God actually has to wipe out the entire world except for Noah's family. And you think to yourself, well, Satan won that round. And you start going through all these pages of the Bible and it just seems like Satan is the one who's victorious. But yet we have all of these individuals who begin pointing us to Jesus. Throughout the Bible, we see that Satan is having so much victory where the people of Israel, they want a king more than they want God. They rebel against the word of the Lord time and time again, sacrificing to idols, wicked kings and queens, judgment fallen on the people of Israel. All manner of sin is going on within God's own people. And you read your Old Testament and you have to think to yourself, is God really that great? Is God really that powerful? Because Satan just seems to be winning round after round after round. It looks like the seed of the serpent is what's winning, not the seed of the woman. Yet all throughout the Old Testament, we have these types, types of Jesus that, that point us to Jesus. Men and women who, who don't point to themselves, but to the one who would eventually crush the head of the serpent. So you have all kinds of what we often call Bible characters that do really great things that point us to the one who will come and do the greatest thing. The way that I was essentially taught to read the Old Testament all growing up was that they were really all of these disconnected stories that didn't have much to do with one another, but there were all these disconnected stories filled with really good morals. And all I had to do was really take the role of the central character and be that central character in my life. So for instance, you read the story of David and Goliath. And, and you say, okay, Brandon, as I'm reading in 1 Samuel 17, I'm reading the story of David and Goliath. I need to be like David. And I need to kill the Goliaths in my life. I need to be brave and, and, and follow after the Lord and, and, and kill Goliaths, right? Or you think of someone like Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. And, and he goes into the lion's den, and the lions are all there. It's like, so the moral of the story of that must be, okay, Brandon, be brave, trust God, and, and dwell among the lions that come along in life. And you do this over and over and over with the stories of the Old Testament, placing yourself as the key player in all of the stories. And that's just a deadly way to read the Bible. That's a suffocating way to read the Bible. Because let me tell you, you are not the key to understanding the Old Testament. You are not the key to understanding the Bible. Jesus is the key to understanding the Bible. Like If we simply use the accounts of the Old Testament to teach us a nice moral, to be respectful, to be kind, to be good, then that's all we have. But friends, you don't need the Bible to teach you that kind of stuff. You can do that with any biographical story. Be like Amelia Earhart and have perseverance and fly over the ocean, right? Like, you can do that with any character. Be like Abraham Lincoln. Be like Teddy Roosevelt, right? On and on. And it's one thing to do that with people throughout history that inspire us. It's another thing to take the accounts of Scripture and to do that. Because the stories about David and Daniel and all of the rest are not about you. They are ultimately about Jesus. And it all finds its beginning in Genesis 3.15. So let me give you a few examples. You have Abraham. Genesis 12. right? He leaves his home in submission to God. And he starts a new people. 
even as Jesus left heaven in submission to the Father for the sake of his people. You have Isaac who goes to the top of the mountain as the one and only son of Abraham, just as Jesus goes to the top of the mountain as the one and only son of God. You have Joseph who is betrayed by his brothers into slavery, but ascends to power in Egypt and uses his power to save his brothers who betrayed him from the death, even as Christ was betrayed to death. Yet in his power, he saved all of those who betrayed him. He saved his brothers and sisters. You have Moses who intercedes on behalf of the people, delivers them from bondage in Egypt, even as Jesus intercedes on behalf of us, and he delivers us from the bondage of sin. You have David who comes and stands where nobody else would before the great Goliath, and he defeats him, even as Jesus would come and stand before the great three-headed monster of sin, death, and Satan, and he would destroy him. You have Queen Esther who goes before her husband and was willing to sacrifice her life on behalf of her people, even as Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life on behalf of his people. You have even a disobedient prophet like Jonah, yet he tells the men in the ship to throw him overboard so that, he could be, so that they could be saved and he would be buried in the belly of the fish, even as Jesus would be figuratively thrown overboard to save us and be buried in the belly of the earth. And on and on and on. It echoes through the Old Testament. There's so much more by way of what we call type and shadow that points us to Jesus within the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system. You read the book of Leviticus and Numbers and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't wait till this is over, right? But it it feels like that because we're not seeing Christ there. But if we saw Christ in Leviticus and Numbers, we would understand this is how perfect Jesus is. This is how perfect worship is for him. This is how perfect he is as the sacrificial lamb. You read Exodus and the Passover lamb. This is how perfect he must be. His blood has been applied to our hearts, even as the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost. On and on we go through the Old Testament. You think of even the offices that you see, the kings. Well, who's the true and better king? Jesus. The priests. Who's the true and better priest? Jesus. Prophets. Who's the true and better prophet? It's Jesus. Like all of the Old Testament is just constantly speaking Jesus' name. Everything within the Old Testament is simply one big arrow that points us to the skull crusher. That's what it's all about. All of the characters and systems and offices within the Old Testament. They're not there in a vacuum. They're there to show and explain Jesus. So you have Jesus as the true and better Adam who succeeds where Adam fails. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. True and better Moses and David and Esther and Jonah. They all point us to him. So many within the context of the Old Testament. Again, they stood against the offspring of the serpent. Goliath is the offspring of the serpent. Babylon is the offspring of the serpent. But you do have these men and women who stand up, don't they? And they fight against them. But that's why I'm saying that we don't put ourselves in the place of David who is fighting against Goliath because David is pointing to Jesus. He's not pointing to you. We're like the weaklings on the side. We're the King Saul's. They're like, I don't want to go out there and fight. I don't want to fight Goliath. We're the ones wimping out. We need Jesus to step in. And he does, and he conquests, and he fights, and he does battle. 
So you have all throughout the Old Testament where there are individuals who are killing the seed of the serpent, little by little, right? You have Samuel who is killing Agag. You have Samson who's killing Philistines. You have Elijah who's killing the prophets of Baal and on and on. But the problem is that although these are wonderful stories, the problem is that none of these people could fully and finally do what Jesus was going to come and do. None of them could fully and finally vanquish evil so they could stem the tide. They could fight where they were as hard as they could, but they could never fully and finally deal with the problem. They could never get the head of the serpent under the heel of their foot. Which is why the dawning of the New Testament is so wonderful. Where we see God come in the flesh. God the divine taking on humanity. The skull crusher would be born of a virgin. He would be the seed of the woman Eve. And he would fully and finally do what no seed of the woman had done before him. He would come and he would have victory over the serpent. He would come and defeat the ancient foe. The divine seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. This would be a job for Jesus. But the question remains, how would he do it? So if we're looking for the answer to this promise, we know the who now. We know it's Jesus. But how is he going to do it? God promised that the head of the serpent would be bruised. But he didn't say how. Yet we see when we get into our New Testament that the head of the snake would be bruised through the death of and resurrection of the seed of the woman. It would be the gospel. Just like that first gospel given in Genesis 3.15, when Jesus comes and he is literally living the gospel in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he's living this thing, right? And he would crush the seed of the snake. He would deal Satan a mortal blow that Satan has never recovered from. So friends, Satan is still a roaring lion. You need to watch out for this guy. He's still the one slinging arrows, like in Ephesians 6, that we have to have the spiritual armor on to protect ourselves from him. So he is the roaring lion. He is the serpent. He is the prince of the power of the air. But there has been a blow that has been dealt to Satan and to the kingdom of darkness that he has never recovered from because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Christ secured our redemption. But the death and resurrection of Jesus was truly an atomic bomb onto Satan and to his entire kingdom. I want to show you this. What? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Listen to that again. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
So who does the author of Hebrews say? Well, what does the author of Hebrews say? That Jesus, through his death, he would destroy the one who has the power of death. And if there was any question as to who was the one who had the power of death, the author of Hebrews tells us, doesn't he? He says it's the devil. The devil is one who has the power of death, and through Jesus' death, he knocks them off. So what does Jesus, the seed of the woman, do through his death? He destroyed the one who had the power of death. He destroyed the seed of the snake. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 and verses 13 and 15. He says this, Paul says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's us, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What did He do? This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So, a couple of things. And this should cause you to jump out of your skin like a snake jumps out of his skin. That the record of debt that stood against you has been nailed to the cross. Right? It's been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. We sing in it as well. That it's been nailed there. But there's another thing that happened and was accomplished at the cross. What does he say at verse 15? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's the language of a general in ancient times winning, having triumph, and marching back into the city, right? After he wins his great war, he marches back in. That's what's going on here. That Jesus is the one who triumphed over Satan and his enemies. Like the victory is as good as gold. I know for most of us, we look at the news and we look at what's going on in the world and we're like, what is going on? Because it just feels like throughout the whole Bible, Satan is winning round after round. And right now in 2019, Satan is winning round after round. What in the world is going on? But Jesus triumphed over Satan. The triumph has already happened. He's had the victory over Satan. And let me just read to you 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now listen, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Do you think of the devil in, in those terms as, as skull crushed? Do you think of him in terms of being triumphed over already? Do you think of him as though his works have been destroyed? We could go on to other passages like Revelation 12. You should go home and read Revelation 12. And you can see this language here between the great dragon and the woman. Who could come and take care of the snake? Jesus would do it. And it would cost him his life. Although when you think about it, his death on the cross was simply a heel bruising in comparison to what Satan got and what Satan's going to get. Our rightful place as a result of being conceived and born in sin, is to be part of the seed of the serpent. That's what we deserve. Yet he has brought us to himself in his glorious grace. And we have been brought into the true seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. We are, we are brought into him. We are united to him. And so that within Christ, being in Christ, all that he has had victory in, his triumphs, we share in those with him. 
And as a result of being in the great seed of the woman, we have the victory. As we close, I want to leave you with two simple applications. The first one is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Most all of you had had the experience of your mom or your dad or somebody promising you something and they simply didn't come through. That is not what you have with your father in heaven. The promises that he makes to you are as good as gold. They will come to pass. We think of this promise in Genesis 3.15. It took about 4,000 years, but it still came to pass. And the second application is this. Live with a defeated foe in view. Live with a defeated foe in view. That the one that we often talk about, Satan came after me this week and so forth, he may have. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But this devil has a caved-in skull. He's walking around like a roaring lion with a massive dent in his head. Jesus has dealt to him the mortal blow through the cross and resurrection. So trust Jesus to come through on his promises and know that you have a defeated foe. Let's pray together.